Hi, it's Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 107 of Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. Today, we know that deaf culture is a thing. Is there such a thing as a blind culture? I'm joined by Amanda Goff, who believes there is, and we'll hear some of your views on the subject. Mosen at Large Podcast. When people talk about deaf people, we always hear about the deaf culture. It's ingrained in the deaf community and it is quite effective in many ways. But there's a lot more debate about whether a blind culture exists or not. Someone who thinks it does is someone who has observed blind people in a range of habitats for well over two decades now. And if you've been listening to this show for a long time, you may remember Amanda when she was Amanda Mosen. Now she's been rebranded and she's, uh, well, re-rebranded actually, and she's Amanda Goff. So welcome, Amanda. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm not sure about this rebranding, well, but yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't know how to do that introduction, really, so we'll just go with that. <laughs> I could say wife 1.0, I suppose, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's so, okay. Now, why did you get interested in this topic? I think because... Well, firstly, I need to start by saying that I work for an organisation that has an interest in this area, I guess, and I don't speak on their behalf in any way, shape or form. I'm just speaking for myself at this point. Right. I guess how I became interested was because I felt from my lived experience that there was a blind culture when I was mixing with various blind people um, from all sorts of different walks of life and ages and it's not something that's easy to put my finger on necessarily, but if I'm in amongst a bunch of blind people, I can once again pinpoint that that feeling is there, that I am in amongst that culture. And I know the cultural norms and I notice when other people come into those settings who don't necessarily have that same grip on the cultural norms. and. There are definitely just ways that things are done, ways that things are said, that to me says, yes, this is a culture. What constitutes a culture? I mean, before we go into what that culture looks like, can you define what you mean when you say culture? Yeah, I think, I don't know if I can exactly define it, but I don't think that a culture has to be a very specific sort of group with a ring around it that can't be part of other cultures or other groups, but I think it has certain defining characteristics that are common across that group. And it has cultural norms. And by cultural norms, I guess I mean ways of behaving, ways of interacting. And it has a shared history or it has parallel histories that are similar. And it also has, to some degree, a shared language. Now, by language, I definitely don't mean like English or French or Spanish, because I think you can have, you can speak the same language of that type. As so sort of people, like a lexicon is what se- you're talking about, is that right? More, more yeah, than, I guess yeah. so, yes. Yeah. So it would be you know, certain terminology that is that pertains to things that happen within that culture. or um, short forms for things. Um, 
acronyms, those sorts of things that, you know, you talk about O&M, for example, and anybody within the blindness cultural field will know what O&M is. Mm. But if you say that when you're just talking to the guy at the takeaway shop, he will have no idea. But I suppose the same could be said of people who are into computers or you know, astrophysics, they've all got their jargon, but does a jargon constitute a culture? Not on its own, but I think it is one of the aspects of that culture. When you and I met, and obviously I started introducing you to friends of mine who were blind, and I remember when amazing night when we had a whole bunch of people over at your place <laughs> and it was probably your first kind of en masse introduction to a bunch of blind people the thing about that of course was that all of those people by virtue of them being friends of mine had very similar shared experiences to me in the sense that we started going to a school for the blind and were then mainstreamed in due time which was sort of how it was mostly done then but if you've got a blind person who has been mainstreamed since the beginning, which is how things are done now for the most part, does that culture exist? I guess, is it blindness that's the common denominator here, or is it just that series of shared experiences that constitutes the culture that you're talking about? I think that it's both. And so the fact that you have shared those experiences enriches the culture. And so there is that whole tuakanatena is for those of you who aren't local, big brother, little brother, passing on of information that go that's kind of intergenerational that was able to happen in those former institutions where blind people lived or at least were educated together. And yeah, you know, the older kids would have picked up stuff from when they were little from the kids who were older than them and they're now passing it down to the younger ones and so on and so forth. So yeah, whether it be that you've worked out how echolocation works, not by talking about it under the terms of echolocation necessarily, but just by people clicking their tongues as they walk past, you know, down the street and then someone else tries it and someone tries clicking their fingers and and it all kind of builds from a shared need, I guess. But then when you have the kids now who are being taught in their local school and you get them together, you still see aspects of that culture coming through, probably not at the same level. And I think that there are certain things about the culture that are probably being lost because of that. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to interpretation. But I think that you do still see certain aspects of that culture coming through. For example, one of the cultural markers might be talking about Braille. And so all these kids may be learning Braille individually in different places, but when they get together, they are able to have discussions about funny quirks and you know something funny that came through with their particular translation software or something, you know, and they get it. So, and I think that getting it is is an important factor. I'm pretty open-minded about whether a culture exists or not, but something you just said really resonated with me that I want to explore because I think it bolsters your case. You know, there was a time, atrociously, that Māori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, were punished for speaking their own language 
in the school system. And I think of how, as a child, I was actively discouraged by teachers of the blind then from using echolocation. And I actually first came across echolocation because I heard Don McKenzie, who I know sometimes listens to Mosin at Large, uh, who was, I think, either chairman of the board then or on the board of the Foundation for the Blind, using it when he came out to the school for the blind that I was attending. And I kind of thought, well, if a successful blind adult like that, you know, he's a physiotherapist, he's he's a very important person, and he's using, I could hear him clicking his tongue just to kind of check what was around him and, and where objects were. And I thought, you know, I do that too, but if he can do that, then I can do that. And I was really surprised when I was essentially told not to do it, that it was a blindism, it looked stupid, and yet it deprived me of a lot of very useful information in the process, being discouraged from doing it, as all of the blind kids were. So I think in a way, that's kind of a uh, a suppression of culture, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think if the blind community can accept that they have a culture, and I don't, I mean, it's not for me to tell the blind community what to do, but having, if, if you can say this is part of my culture, this is a cultural norm, there is a reason for me doing this, and it is a cultural reason as well as being a useful thing, I think that there's a good chance that you would have more traction. Traction, what, what does that mean in this context? Traction as far as getting, having that accepted by sighted people. I think there are a lot of blindisms out there and we have to, I mean, I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but we have to look carefully at those blindisms as they are known and see why they exist. Do they exist with a purpose and that purpose being to achieve something more independently than you would be able to if you weren't doing it? Or are they just because you haven't had the opportunity to observe normal social behaviour and you don't know any better? And I think if there is a purpose behind it, then you have every right to say, this is my way of knowing that there are buildings I'm going to bang into or whatever, you have your way, which is using your eyes. I'm not going to tell you not to use your eyes, but at the same time, I would appreciate it if you could understand that this is something that I need to achieve the same outcome. Yeah, so you have to draw the line somewhere there, don't you? Because, of course, as I always say, blind people totally rock. Uh, But if you (laughs) you have have blind people who are rocking around – uh, and not just the Christmas tree, and you have uh, you have people eye poking and stuff like that. That serves no particular. Well, I don't think it serves any purpose. I guess it makes some blind people feel good to rock, doesn't it? And and it it helps. I know that some blind people say it helps them think when they do the eye poking thing. You know, they're sort of sitting there, head ducked over a Perkins brailer with a finger in their eye, and they say it actually does help them focus. So, I mean, where where do you draw the line on that? It's always a bit of a grey area, isn't it, in there somewhere. But I do know that there is a purpose to eye-poking and to rocking and all those sorts of behaviours that probably wasn't understood so much in the past. But now 
we can see that that provides sensory stimulation and a brain is generally wanting sensory stimulation all the time and vision provides an awful lot of that. If you haven't got visual input happening, then often you'll find that you need to do something else to give your brain that sensory stimulation. And sometimes it's just a matter of working out what is socially acceptable that will give you that, sti- you know, give you that stimulation um, so that you are able to function. So, th- you know, there's a purpose to all of it, nearly, but sometimes there has to be um, a bit of balance in there and you have to think, okay, well, if I'm getting sensory stimulation by poking my fingers deep into my eye sockets, but when anybody looks at me, it makes them feel physically ill, so they're not actually going to want to hang out with me, then maybe I can find some other way of, of getting that, or maybe I'm just going to do that when I'm home alone, and I'm going to recognize that that's not something that I'm going to do out in public. So when we were talking about this, and I said to you, you should come on Mosin at Large and talk about this, one of the things you were recalling was... I think it was that first time that we got a whole bunch of people over at your place, a whole bunch of blind people, <laughs> and um, we had some wine. It was probably really cheap plonk in those days, I'm sure. And people had filled up these very nice wine glasses that I think belonged to your mum, and um, we were running our fingers along the top of them and commenting on the pitch of the kind of whistle that you get when you when you do that trick. Is that a part of the blind culture, or is that just because – since blind people consume a lot of audio, if you will, because we live in an audio-based world, we're just interested in that stuff. You see what I'm saying? So is being having a common interest not something that would mark a culture? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, say, coming back to the Māori example again, if a lot of Māori people enjoy playing the guitar, let's say, which is a horrible stereotype, does that make it part of the culture? Or is it just an interest? I don't think a culture can be defined by things that are only exclusive to that group. Just because Pākehā people might enjoy playing the guitar as well doesn't mean that guitar playing couldn't be a part of Māori culture. Just because somebody else might enjoy something or it may be part of things that they do every day doesn't mean that it can't be a cultural marker for a culture that they are not a part of. If a lot of blind people have a strong interest in sound, for example, that does become a cultural marker because it's something that is very common to that group rather than just something that you can sort of take it or leave it. I know if, for example, you get a bunch of blind people together there will always be someone who can play the piano. Now, that may be a stereotype, but I I would challenge you to find me a bunch of blind people of three or more who just randomly came together and you couldn't find a great pianist amongst them and that everybody knew the words to all the songs. And yes, I am, being, I am making stereotypes here, I know, but it is, these are the sorts of things that for me as an outsider, I would see all the time. And they did become, yes, that's just a part of the culture. These days you've got people who grow up quite isolated from other blind people, which wasn't always the case. And so it may be that it will take some years before they come together with a group of blind people. And I'm wondering whether you find 
that in that eventuality, there are kids who sort of have a a moment where they go, wow, you know, here, here are people like me. Here are people who like the things that I like and do the things that I do. And suddenly I don't feel so alone or isolated or unusual anymore. I've definitely seen that. I don't want to speak too much about the job that I do at the moment, right, but right. I have definite, I have definitely seen that. I have seen a couple of young blind kids come together and start making crazy sounds on their braille note or whatever it happens to be that they've got and using the record function and working together and and this whole kind of this other person gets me and I've never had that before experience happening. So what does that say about the need for blind kids to meet each other and our obligations in that regard and also for their need to get to know blind adult role models, mentors? Well, I guess it brings me back to the fact that I think if there was an accepted blind culture, there would be good reason to be able to ensure that that culture was able to be passed down, passed on, shared. If blind people don't accept that they have a culture, then perhaps the benefits would not be seen as being so important for that to be passed on. I'm interested in this from the angle of blind pride which is actually a Twitter hashtag I've started using. Sometimes I hear from people who say things like, the greatest compliment someone can give me is to say, oh gosh, sometimes I forget that you're blind. And it's almost as if blindness is something to be put in the background, to be a little bit ashamed of, to not bring to the fore too much. And I contrast that, for example, with the gay pride parades that we have and the way that uh, the LGBTQ community just embrace what they have and they assert it and they, they say, yeah, this is something that we're proud of. And yet there are a lot of people very shy about doing that. You also have people who take great pride in criticizing blindness-specific products. Like I've heard things such as the Braille Note or the Victorita Stream or any of those note-taker products, the Braille Sense, that sort of thing, described as blind ghetto products, even though we're a market that just needs to be catered to like any other market. Somehow, anything relating to blindness is sort of viewed in a pejorative sense, even by some blind people. Yeah, and if I were to compare that, say, with deaf culture, I mean, on their website where they talk in the, um, I think it's Deaf Aotearoa, um, is, I believe, a consumer group of deaf people. Yeah, they are a DPO, um, yeah, and they provide services, yeah. so there's sort of a crossover. A crossover. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But when they're talking about deaf culture, I mean, that some of their cultural markers that they state are things like deaf people are proud to be deaf. Yeah. And deaf people see being deaf as a difference, not a disability. Is there any reason why blind people can't be proud to be blind or blind people can't see blindness as a difference and not yeah. a disability? I'm, I'm personally very proud to be blind. You will have been familiar, I'm sure, with Kenneth Jernigan's article called Blindness Handicap or Characteristic. And of course, handicap was a more acceptable term then. I take it you, you do recall that article? Uh, yes, not in detail, but definitely the, the thinking behind it. So yeah. he's essentially making that same argument that, that, it, that it is a characteristic that whether you're short or 
uh, have, have a particular, say, weakness in a, in a discipline like mathematics or whatever. There are all sorts of characteristics that may have limitations that define you. But his argument was blindness is not, should, shouldn't be considered disabling. I think that that's true. And I think that a lot of the disabling effects of blindness are actually socially imposed and often socially imposed by blind people themselves. So it's not that it's not going to have any limiting effects. It is. Let's be, you know, let's get real. But it's how you interpret that. I mean, yeah, everything has its positives and negatives about it and blindness is no different from that. I think the other thing that sort of relates to that is I often hear blind people say, I'm not going to let my blindness define me. And it's like, why not? Mm, mm. Why are you not going to let your blindness be one of the characteristics that defines you? Yeah. Because if there's nothing wrong with being blind, then why not let it be one of your defining characteristics? I agree with you. I mean, if you're going to let being beautiful be one of your defining characteristics, then let being blind be one of your defining characteristics. It's not the only characteristic that's going to define any of us. But is there really an issue with letting blindness be a defining characteristic? Because if it isn't, we're essentially allowing the rest of society to define that characteristic as a negative, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. You're working on a master's thesis at the moment. Does does that incorporate any of this thinking that we've been talking about today? Well, my thesis is around listening skills, basically, particularly compensatory auditory skill acquisition. So by compensatory, I mean the listening skills that blind people and people with low vision use to enable them to perform tasks or get information that the rest of society gets through vision. So be that understanding where they are or understanding what's happening in their environment or any of those sorts of things. The things that your average sighted person uses their sight to get. I mean, we're told that 80% of the information that we get is through sight. But I've always argued that blind people aren't on 20%. They're getting a huge amount of that other 80% through other senses. So that's sort of where my thesis is heading. But yeah, I think that it does it does look at the whole cultural thing. And so when we've got those compensatory auditory skills, where are they coming from? How are we getting them? And are they important? And how do we pass them on? Yeah, and that 80% thing infuriates me because it's often used as a way for employers to think, oh, well, gosh, this person is going to be super less productive than anybody else. And, of course, that's something I think about a lot in my day job. So I wish that blindness agencies would be much more careful about the way that they portray that. Yeah, I think that I'm not saying it's not true that that's how sighted people do get most of their information. But to just leave it at that does imply that blind people are operating on 20%. Mm. Now, Mm. if you're operating on 20%, you couldn't do the jobs that you have done in life. The blind kids who go to school couldn't do what they do every day. It's just stupid to believe that anybody could operate on 20% of the information that 
is typical to receive and still be a functioning person. So obviously that information is coming from elsewhere. And so that I think is another one of those cultural markers is that we get our information through different means and that's part of our culture. Let's say we assume that there is a blind culture. Can a blind person opt out of it? Because I can imagine, having heard from some listeners in the past on different topics, they will say, look, I've been blind all my life. It doesn't play a part in what I do. I have a a, a regular job and I don't work with other blind people. I don't choose to interact with them, although they're listening to this podcast, obviously. Um, And I, (laughs) I I, I choose not to be a part of any blind culture that might exist. Can you opt out? I suppose at a certain level, you can. It depends what you see as being the, the cultural markers, I guess. I mean, you can opt out and not, you know, not use. I don't know if you can opt out completely. I think that. Like the you Hotel can, California um, of cultures. You can check yeah, out anytime. <laughs> you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think that it depends how they are defining blind culture. And. There may be certain things that they see as blind culture that they interpret as being negative. If you interpret blind culture as being eye-poking and rocking, Mm. then you may say, well, I'm not a part of that. I don't do that stuff. Um, But So I think it it all depends on how we define blind culture. But I don't think we should see it as a negative thing. I think we should see it as a positive thing. Um, and something that being a part of is something we can be proud of. Well, I can't because I'm not part of it, really. Well, induct you as an honorary member of the Blind Culture <laughs> Hall of Fame, or <laughs> given all you've had to put up with with people, you know, doing things with your wine glasses. And so, do you think? But just one thing that's occurred to me to ask you: Do you think that a disproportionate number of blind people have perfect pitch? Absolutely, and the the research proves it. Um, Adam Ockelford's research in the UK, I think, puts it at four thousand times more likely. Really for people born blind or who lose their sight before they've developed language. And it's not just the kind of perfect pitch that a sighted person will sometimes, like like someone who's really musical, will kind of develop. It's got a different feel to it. It's the whole culture of somebody being able to say, gee, I hate that number 47 bus. I hate the way that the brakes are an F sharp. Yeah. It's like, you know, the brakes are what? Yeah. <laughs> or, or that that horn of that vehicle going past is like a really cool diminished sixth or something. Yeah. 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 And it's like that. that is not how perfect pitch amongst sighted people who have perfect pitch tends to operate even. It's got its own – well, I guess it's got the whole – concept of having other people around you who get this anyway <laughs> so you know when you when you're talking about pitch in relation to non-musical things you're amongst other people who also talk about pitch in that way we had a listener actually who sent in a contribution a few weeks ago and he made some sort of comment that he was giving a blind friend's direction to get to his house in a neighborhood that this blind person had never been to before. And he made some sort of comment about there's a series of poles along the uh, sidewalk. And when you find the one that's on like a fifth octave F sharp, that's my house. (laughs) And he found it that way. So it's interesting that, isn't it? It is. 
It is. Yeah, it's great. But I mean, that's another thing, just talking about orientation. I was reading an article the other day and it was about this guy saying there's a whole difference between blind people and sighted people when it comes to asking the question about where am I? Well, basically, if a sighted person asks that, the next question really usually is, well, where do you want to get to? Whereas for a blind person, it really is, where am I? So if you haven't got, you know, the latest and greatest GPS devices or whatever, and you've had to take a different turn from usual because there were roadworks or, you know, there's something parked across the pavement or whatever, and you've found yourself lost, you're asking, where am I? And then you can use your knowledge to find your way to where you want to be. Whereas for a sighted person, it's, where am I? Which really means, um, how do I get to where I need to go to? I suppose that's right. Although a blind person may also need to ask the same question. Well, they may. And then they will need different information about how to get there. Yeah, it's over there. Everything's over there. It's over there, down that road, and then at the blue house, you're going to turn right. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I hope that this provokes some interesting discussions because I was a bit on the fence, and having listened to this, I – I think I'm less on the fence. I think I see what you're talking about when you talk about the cultural norms. And they, they're they more than just the shared experience of a boarding school or a school for the blind. It sort of just transcends all of that. I think so. And I think this, you know, if the blind community are open to the idea of promoting the fact that they do have a culture, then there is a very strong sort of body out there of understanding what it means to be culturally responsive. And if that helps blind people to get have their needs met appropriately, because whatever's happening is either not culturally responsive or it it hasn't been their culture hasn't been considered, I think that it will actually make life in general easier. So I was about to wrap, but again you've just said something I want to explore a bit. And that is that I think blindness is very feared. There's all sorts of research that indicates that some people fear going blind even more than cancer or AIDS or death itself. And so that often feeds into the way that blind people are perceived in society, the blindness employment crisis that exists. Now, I heard something earlier in the week that just appalled me. You will remember back in the 1990s when I took a complaint to the Broadcasting Standards Authority over Sean Plunkett using the word blind in a pejorative way. Uh, Believe it or not, this is far worse. So I was listening to Morning Report the other day, and the headline, the intro right at the beginning from Susie Ferguson said that the Minister of the Environment said he's blind on the issues at TY Point. And then twice in the interview, the minister said that he was blind on these issues. And basically what he was saying was that he didn't have sufficient information. He wasn't in full possession of the facts. There was unclarity. So he was using the word blind as a synonym for ignorant stupidity and arguably not being on top of the political brief that he's meant to be on top of. And nobody... Uh, during that interview process, questioned his use of the word blind in that way. And you can imagine what would have happened had he used 
a racial stereotype or even said that somebody was behaving like a girl and rightly so i'm not i'm not uh, denigrating the fact that they would have pulled him up on it if we claim blindness as a positive and assert our culture maybe that is one way of trying to put a stop to this stuff absolutely and i think you have to be really careful how you do that because blind and anything to do with sight has become so entrenched in our language as almost a synonym for knowledge or understanding that it has become an accepted norm. And that may be why terms like, you know, visually impaired and vision impaired and sight impaired and, you know, the whole gamut have become popularized because um, blind itself is being seen as a, a negative. Now, I think you Ah, no, sorry, I'll rephrase that. I can't say I think you need to do anything. But if blind people were to say, we are proud to be blind, blind is not a negative term, blind is just a descriptor, but we don't want it misused. And as part of our culture that we are blind, but don't go mucking around with it to mean anything as far as you know, understanding or um, knowledge goes, then that could be helpful, I think. Yeah, it's the same way as yeah. the gay community understandably gets very annoyed when you hear particularly young people describing something or someone as gay, basically meaning ridiculous or stupid. And I hope that every decent parent pulls any youngster up who uses gay in that way. There's a lot of it about. Uh, obviously, the word retarded is also often used by young people in a way I find deeply troubling. Um, so you've really got to you've really really got to claim it. And I agree, it's about asserting that pride. Essentially, it's about blind people asserting ownership of the word blind. And really, the way that we use these terms even 10 years ago is completely irrelevant. We're supposed to be evolving as a society, and we just got to knuckle down and speak up against those people who are going to say, oh, this is politically correct. Of course, woke is the latest word. Um, this is this is woke. This is ridiculous. We can't say anything anymore. We need to claim that word for ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, it is where it comes from. So let's allow it to go back to its origins yeah. um, and not and and claim it in that way and then move forward and suggest that people use words that are more appropriate to say that, you know, somebody is lacking in understanding or lacking in knowledge, um, you know, hasn't thought of another perspective, even perspective, maybe, <laughs> maybe pushing the, boundaries, but hasn't seen it from, and I'm using seen, I guess, a different person's, in a different person's way. I mean, you get um, all those short-sighted, you know, it was a very short-sighted opinion, or he was very one-eyed, or all those sorts of terms. It's not just blind. Mm. They all relate to sight. Very good. Well, I hope this stimulates some really good discussion. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really interesting. Oh, you're welcome. I'm not sure if I've had much to add. and and. Yeah, once again, I don't want to try and tell blind people what to think because that is not my position at all. This is just from my observations as a um, fairly entrenched sideliner. There you go. The artist formerly known as Amanda Mosen, wife 1.0. <laughs> Good to have her on the podcast with some very thoughtful comments. You do find some sighted people just get it, don't you? 
every so often you meet a sighted person who really has taken the time to understand and observe and be quite respectful of the right of blind people to determine their own destiny. So great discussion. Hope you found it interesting. And of course, if you would like to comment on it, you can drop me an email with an audio attachment or just write it down, send it into Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. And the listener line number is 864-60-MOSIN in the United States, 864-606-6736. Hi, Jonathan, says Carol Ashland. I think there is a blind culture. It is strongest among people who attended a school for the blind. I have found that blind people who went through the public school system are not comfortable with blind people. Some blind people who have not had the opportunity to be around well-adjusted, capable blind people sometimes feel that they have no peer group. I attended the Oregon State School for the Blind for seven years and then was dumped into the public school system. I had not felt comfortable in the School for the Blind and I certainly didn't fit in in the public school. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-6736. Now from New Zealand, the home once again of the America's Cup... It's Bonnie Mosin. Hi, everybody. Hi, the, guys. The the current, <laughs> the incum the incumbent. <laughs> ah. Eternal. Well, yeah. What what did you think of Amanda's comments on blind I culture? I thought it was very interesting. I mean, this topic has come up before in various incarnations, places, and it was she had she made some really good points. I think it's. I guess it a lot of it, and she did touch on this, is what is culture? Mm. You know, how do we define culture? And everything does – everything has its own subculture, I guess, because I was thinking, you know, being a horse person, there is a horse culture, and there are groups mm. within that culture. You know, there's writing cultures. Any kind of community, I guess you might say, has has some kind of culture. Yes. I suppose any community – whether it be a geographical community mm -hmm. or maybe the theatre community, for yeah, example, absolutely. you know, it has a culture. And so it doesn't mean that by belonging to one culture or being at peace with being a part of a culture that you aren't a part of many other cultures. So you yeah. can be a New Zealander and absorb New Zealand culture and still be involved in blind culture. Yeah. So it's, it's, cause I think in the past we've, we've sort of looked at culture as being, okay, I'm Italian or I'm of Italian heritage. So, you know, I have, I didn't those, know that. Oh, I'm not, oh, but I mean, right, I'm just right, using right. that as a, is a, you know, <laughs> is a, is an example because they for do, instance. well, there are yeah. certain, you know, groups that have a stronger culture and like the Italians and at least in the U.S., I think the Italians and the, the Hispanics. And, and again, there's different cultures within that group because you've had the Puerto Ricans who celebrate different sorts of traditions and, and Mexicans that, uh, you know, with Cinco de Mayo and, you know, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, that sort of thing. So there are different things within that culture, but yet they're separate. One thing that got me thinking 
as I was listening to this uh, exposition from Amanda, is the way that we can apply this to the way that we expect our technology to be designed. Mm -hmm. So clearly the accessibility overlay companies are coming under a lot of heat from some in the blind community because they weren't consulted when these things were put together. But you also see this, even though people think that Apple's doing a wonderful job overall, Mm -hmm. there's a frustration that there's a clash. And I think you could argue it's a cultural clash between Apple's culture and their culture is definitely, we know what's best for the user. We are secretive. You'll know what you get when you get it. Mm -hmm. And the culture that has been established from a long time ago where blind people have traditionally known who their assistive technology designers Mm -hmm. are, and they want to engage with them. I mean, everybody who wants to knows how to get hold of Eric Damery, for example. Uh, And you can go onto the Eyes Free list even and talk via that email list with a number of senior Android developers. It doesn't take too much to know who the key people at Amazon are either. But Apple, it's much more difficult. And uh, even if you did manage to find who those people are. They're not really encouraged to talk to you. So that's a cultural clash, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a part of that culture because businesses have culture. Different organizations have culture, like you just said. Yeah. I mean, we think a lot as a chief executive. I think a lot about our organization's culture and and what's it like and can we better it and stuff. So, you know, I think think you're right. It's it's all in the definition. It's all in the definition because I think we automatically default to nationalities or, you know, ethnic groups or religions or, you know, whatever. That's more of a kind of a tangible thing, maybe. But mm. it is a very broad scope with, with culture. Yeah, interesting. It'll be quite fascinating to find out whether people chime in on this. And it was interesting, it. the part about blind pride. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't really think of myself as being proud to be blind. It's it's just, it's kind of like, do I think of myself as being proud to be a blonde white female? You know, it's just not something that I really sit around and, and dwell on because it's, it's part of my, it's just part of who I am. It's something that I can't change, but I haven't been blind all my life. So I don't know if that makes it a difference, but I don't really think of myself, am I proud to be blind or if I'm not proud to be blind? It's just, it's just is. I'm proud to be blind. Yeah. I'm very proud to be blind. And the reason for that is that this comes back to the social model of disability, uh-huh. which we've talked about on this show before, where yeah. instead of talking about people with disabilities, which is essentially sort of blaming the individual, yeah. the, uh, the individual has the disability. We in New Zealand now talk about disabled people, which essentially yeah. says it is society yeah. through its poor choices that is choosing to disable us. So following on from that, I am proud to be blind mm-hmm. on the basis that despite a disabling society, I'm rocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, I'm not rocking. That's bad. There's a blindism. <laughs> but but I'm I'm achieving, I'm succeeding, yeah. and I'm proud of and that. And I guess I just I don't think about it. So maybe I am, but I just don't I just don't it's just what I am. It's funny because there are certain aspects again within the blind culture that I'm proud of. Like I'm very proud to be a guide dog handler. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud to be a braille reader. 
you know, and, and again, and, and within any culture, there are little subcultures, the horse culture example, racing, who everyone hates. And then you have the show jumpers, which I've also been a part of, and then the rodeo people. And, you know, so I'm proud, very proud to be a guide dog handler, very proud to be a braille reader. So mm. I guess with an uppercase B, with an uppercase B, exactly. So, um, which it, in my mind is a source of pride in being a brow user. A user is capitalizing the B. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you know if they capitalize Nimeth, by the way? Uh, yeah, because it's a name. Well, so is I know, Braille. I know, I know. But yeah, they do. Yeah. So isn't they, that? They do. Are you sure? I think so. Someone, See, that's just jolly inconsistent, isn't it? I think so. I'm pretty sure they do. Someone can correct me, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it capitalized. Mm. We had I mean, a not that I use a lot of Nemeth code because I am not a maths person, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it capitalized. Yeah, it was pretty cool to actually talk to the real live living Nemeth when he was him. living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really quite something. Now, on to other subjects. We had a fantastically exhilarating week this week because because once again, we have won the America's Cup. The America's Cup is once again New Zealand's Cup. So this is yachting. And um, New Zealanders are a bit deluded if they think that somehow this has given us a lot of publicity. I mean, people are (laughs) saying, I guess it must be quite. I don't know, demoralizing for many people who are watching the yachting from all around the world. It's been taking place in Auckland, in the harbour here, and they've got these really fast, it's like Formula One boating. I mean, Mm -hmm. these things are literally flying above the water, and apparently it's quite spectacular, especially when they crash, which they do sometimes. They they fall off the fours and fall in the water, and then they get very stuck. The American boat, like, completely capsized. Yes, but I think... What people have seen is obviously we've got no COVID in the community and so mm-hmm. uh, we've just had a normal event and that must be quite a spectacle for people who are still trying to get things under control. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't think hardly anybody cares about the yachting. We're, no, we're, unless Zealand's you're in that culture, by. the yachting culture, then it's important. The yachting culture. <laughs> the yachting community, yeah. I mean, it's, it is – I mean, it, it – I don't even know if I saw it in the po- sports pages – of any internet, I mean, it may have. Gotten it was a in the Guardian bit. and a few other yeah. things, I think. But I, what I like about it is that there's so much technology behind yeah. this. I mean, what's making those things kind of fly above the water mm-hmm. and everything is very complex, cutting edge technology. And the fact that a country of five million people, you look at the at the uh, countries we have beaten in the four times we've won the cup, we've beaten the United States twice. We beat a Swiss uh, – uh, who do we beat? Uh, oh, we beat Luna Rossa. That's right. We beat them Italian, twice as well. Yeah. We beat them twice as well. So, you know, billionaires funding these things, and yet this little country of five million people can do that. Mm-hmm. I, it's a wonderful thing. And just for the record, there are billionaires funding our team as well. Well, Emirates. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> it's a rich man's race. It is, yeah. There's a lot uh, of money like that goes racing, into those yeah, things. Rich man's yeah. Sport of, sport of, I don't know what it would be. We call ours the sport of kings. I'm not sure what that would be. The sport of, the sport of sportsmen. Maybe mm. it would be. Well, and, and it was traumatizing because what happened is we won it in 1995 fair and square and then we won it in 2000. We defended it here in New Zealand. And then 
Uh, Switzerland, of all people. I mean, they don't even have any water. <laughs> they don't have a water. What, what are they doing? They have a here? lake. <laughs> lake Geneva. <laughs> Switzerland came streams. along. This, this Swiss business syndicate with the with this massive checkbook, and they basically bought all our best sailors away, yeah. which really caused a lot of bitterness in 2003, you know, the sort of 30 pieces of silver. And we had a spectacularly catastrophic <laughs> America's Cup in yeah. 2003, and there was a lot of bitterness. And it took us until 2017 to win it back again. And so, you know, it's it's something that New Zealanders really do care about. It's yeah. quite exciting. And they want to keep it in the family again in the next four years. So I guess we'll have to see what happens with that. Yeah. But it, it was it was really something. Um, there was just that wonderful sense of euphoria. And they reckon that they had over 200,000 people wow. watching it wow. in, in Auckland. Hopefully no super spreading. No, well, if we've got COVID, we sure as heck are going to know we about gotta it. We've got to know about with, with it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two weeks. Stay yeah. tuned. Yeah. Oh. It's all clear signal. <laughs> so it's, it was a it was a wonderful thing. And yeah. uh, and the Italians put up a bit of a fight. Uh, they We eventually won seven races to three. So, uh, But there, there was a point where it was tied up at three each, and then we won the last five races. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right, very good. Anything else going on you want to tell? Oh, we the did world the about? disclosure. Oh, yes, yeah. So uh, we've been active on the jolly old clubhouse, and of course, the show is going out live on clubhouse. clubhouse it's re- right really now. amazing yeah. to see uh, a number of people there. We've had uh, over thirty people in the room, cool. which is a lot fewer who listen uh, on Mushroom FM. But yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, we decided to have a discussion yesterday that ran two hours about yeah. when, whether, and how to disclose, disclose your in impairment in a job, job interview. situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 What are the highlights of that discussion? For you? Um, you know, with disclosure, it is a it's a complicated issue. There are no right or wrong answers. I have heard what we call employment consultants here, what we call in the states VR counselors or job developers, whatever, uh, tell people to disclose. Um, my personal opinion is don't do it unless it is advantageous to you. If you're applying for a job in a disability field or a blindness specific field, definitely disclose it and um, go from there. Although sometimes those areas can be more discriminating than, than general, you know, employers. I have found that in the past long time ago, but it's, it's all about the spin. You know, that's, that's kind of the bottom. There was a lot of people. I think the majority of people felt that you should not disclose. Um, unless you have to. And then we talked about, and it has changed. And I am not currently in the employment field, but it would be interesting to find out what people are saying now that a lot of things have gone virtual. Yes. And also, I think attitudes have changed. So sometimes human resources departments do have various objectives in terms of making their workplace more diverse. Yeah. And they they might say, we'd like X percent to be someone who is disabled. Yeah, that's a tough one because we talked about that because diversity doesn't necessarily, in my experience, cover disability. They talk the talk. But whether they actually will walk the walk, I know what I did on one application is I saw where they had put that prominently on their website. You know, we wanted a diverse and inclusive workspace or, you know, company. And I did use that in my cover letter. So, again, it's it's really knowing it's 
marketing. You're, you're marketing to an audience and really knowing who or what that audience is. It was really interesting hearing yeah. from Grant Patterson yesterday, who was talking about how he chose not to disclose mm-hmm. and he actually missed out on a job yeah. because they gave it to someone who was blind, not realizing that he was blind. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. it's, it's becoming a more nuanced issue. It's, it's very nuanced. And sometimes you just have to go with your gut. You know, sometimes you just really have to go on instinct. And if it's a job, again, researching your company that you're applying where know everything you possibly can, look at their social media, that sort of thing, and just really tailoring every there's, – there's not in this situation one size that fits all. We hosted the event yesterday in the uh, 15% Club Mm-hmm. thinking that we might get a pan-disability audience. But to the best of my knowledge, what we largely got actually was a blind audience. Yeah. So we will probably do future events like this in the Mushroom FM Club. Yeah. So if you're not f- uh, following the Mushroom FM Club and you're in Clubhouse, then follow it today. And we will do more because it was a really interesting discussion. It's kind of like having a cuppa at the Mosin's back, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Only much better. You think it's better? I think so. Yeah. How are you finding Clubhouse? I like it. I don't. I don't have a lot of time. You know, I, I only really go to things that particularly interest yeah, me. I envy the people who seem to be on there. They live on there. Yes, <laughs> some people do. I think some of them must be somehow paid by their company or something because there are some that are on there a lot. You're always seeing creating rooms. Like the all... person from the giant, uh, yes. Small Steps and Giant, giant Leaps, Leaps who's program. called Alda Riley. We're yeah, not quite that's... sure what the personal gender pronoun is. Yeah, but they're always But, but they're, they're always on all the, all the time. Alda yeah. Riley's on all the time. <laughs> Eugene Baugh and uh, Eric Wine. I mean, there's several names that pop up, and I'm not sure who some of these people are. But that's okay, you know. But um, I did go to some PR and communications things this past week that were yeah, absolutely yeah, I've done, fantastic. I've done some good stuff. So, um, and a couple of horse things. I haven't been able to really pop into the horse things because a lot of stuff happens while I'm sleeping. Or while you're supposed to be working. Or while I'm supposed Ooh. to be working. And I get pings like, ooh, you need you to You should join this room. Yeah. Like, no, I don't particularly want to, but whatever, go away. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's good. It's, it's, I was in there's a definitely scene. a culture on Clubhouse, there's isn't there? There's definitely a culture. Yeah. Um, I was in the Seeing Eye room yesterday, and that was really nice. So I enjoyed that. There wasn't a lot of people in there, and it was – you know, just nice to just sit and chat with, with people that I know. A lot of them I've, you know, known for, for years or. Have you got more invitations? Um. You must have. I mean, yeah, I've gotten a couple equestrian ones. No, no, sorry. What I mean is like invitations oh, that, to Clubhouse ten. of people yeah, that are wanting ten. to get on. Oh, right, right. So, so if you email me, if you're not on Clubhouse and you want to get on, uh, email me to jonathan at mushroomfm.com and between us, we can probably set you up yeah. with an invitation uh, to Clubhouse. But what you should do, for those who didn't listen to episode 99 of the Mosin at Large podcast where we talked about this, uh, set up your your Clubhouse app because what then happens is that people who have you in their contacts who are on Clubhouse get told that you're waiting. And if you're kind, you will let waiting people in. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. It's really – I don't know if it's – it's been around a year because they were having a lot of birthday yes. celebrations the other day. So it seems to be, uh, you know, having a good run as far as social media is concerned. Watch this Twitter space. That's yeah. what I say. Yeah, Watch this so Twitter it, space. It, I don't know. We'll see. You know, it's, 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 social media is a 
I mean, I think Clubhouse may well have just established such a sort of become a part of people's lives that perhaps they will be able to withstand Twitter spaces. I think they might because one thing I've noticed when I was in the communications and PR the other day and they were talking about methods, new methods for 2021. And one thing that I think has happened is because of the pandemic that people are zoomed out. You know, you're always on video and, and this is all audio. So yeah. you can so do. So it's Twitter spaces though. Yeah. It, it'll so be all, it'll be interesting yeah. because people were walk, you know, when they'd pull them up on the stage, like, well, I'm walking my dog, yeah. you know, or I'm, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about being presentable. I mean, one girl was like munching on her, whatever she was munching on. Yeah. That's a bit, a bit weird, gross. But no. whatever, you know, and her dog's barking in the background, but her dog has become part of the, Oh, that's Coco, you know, yeah. it's sort of become a character, or not a character, but a a part of that particular yeah. culture, which is great. You know, it cool. was it was really good. I really, really enjoyed what I what I listened to. Well, I'm glad that you're enjoying it with your millions of followers on Clubhouse. Not really. I have 137. Oh, well, people can follow. <laughs> We're getting Bonnie there. On. We're people getting... can follow Bonnie on Clubhouse. Yeah. yeah, I'm following you. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.